Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Jake and the Pain podcast. I'm joined again by Sam Herbst. What's up, Sam? Honored to be back. Um, I like how we're doing this right after the last dance. Everything's fresh, but um, yeah, excited to be back. Yeah, so when Sam and I did the last podcast, we had a ton of fun. I mean, I'm assuming you had a ton of fun. I had a ton of fun doing the I last dance I had fun as well. Stuff. Don't worry. I had fun <laughs> as well. So we did the last dance stuff, and I was just after – I listened back to the pod. I texted Sam a couple of days after and I was like, well, how about we just do this when it's all fresh in our head? Cause even then I listened back to the pod. I was like, damn, I wish I talked about that. I wish I talked about that. So here we are doing kind of a post-show recap reactions, whatever you want to call it. Quick little podcast, get our thoughts out. Um, I thought those personally, I thought those are the two best episodes of the series. I don't want to be like prisoner of recency bias, but what about you? I think they just keep getting better. Um, mm-hmm. I was really excited for this one because of all the baseball stuff, the storyline with his dad, um, and just kind of everything that I knew was kind of taking place in this era of like the the comeback and the seventy two win season mm-hmm. um, and all that kind of stuff. I was just really excited to see how they kind of portrayed that. Um, I honestly wasn't the biggest fan of how they did the timeline, especially in like episode seven. I thought they were kind of abrupt with how they went back and forth from like baseball to the MJLS Bulls. But, um, and I, I thought they were kind of getting by with like being okay and not too confusing on the other episodes. But I thought for this one specifically, I thought they like maybe jumped around too quickly and like there wasn't that connection between um, like the present in the last dance and then like the past, whereas in other episodes they would have a Scottie Pippen moment or a Phil Jackson moment in the 98 season. And then they would kind of connect that back to Phil's history or Scottie's history or something like that. So for this one, I thought it kind of happened a little quick. And I realized that when my mom was like a little confused, she was like, (laughs) where are we? What are we talking about? So, um, I mean, that's just obviously, obviously nitpicking. I enjoyed the shit out of the episodes but um that's the one thing i thought that was pretty interesting that made this episode a little different than the others yeah no i, I mean i get that for sure i think the mj list bowls were kind of i'm sure we'll talk about it but like they were i feel like i want to know more i don't want to know more about them because like we're talking about like not only just like mj on the court like okay yeah he's gonna get you 30 35 a game everything goes through him he's the alpha on the court but off the court like they hinted, I mean, Kerr talked about it, that you went from MJ, this like constant demand of like near perfection or just give it all you got to kind of, they transformed to Scotty, who was more of this pick you up kind of teammate, which obviously he had that one bleak moment, which I'm sure we'll both talk about, but that just transformation. I mean, every, anyone who's been in a basketball team like that, just the change and just stark like difference between MJ and Scotty on how they're portrayed as leaders. I just think to go like, just that drop off from MJ to Scotty at the top of that team, not only on the court, but off the court. Like I really want, would have wanted to them to dive into that more and learn more about that. Like talk to Kerr more and all the guys on that team. Cause I just like that. I, that was crazy for me to, me to even imagine. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the Phil receiving that call from MJ after the Scotty sit out of the Ku coach buzzer beater. Mm-hmm. I kind of agree with him. It's like, as much as I love hearing you talk about um, like how great of a leader uh, Scotty was, how different he was from MJ. It's like, you kind of got to take it with a grain of salt just because of um, if you're going to let your 
if you're going to sit out in that kind of moment, it's, it's, it may not be reflective of who he is as a person. And I've mentioned before on the pod that I'm a huge Scotty guy as a person and as a player, I think he's underrated and all that fun stuff. But um, if that's going to happen in that kind of moment, it's not really, it, it kind of taints all that other stuff. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. I can, I completely agree. Um, so we, I think this is a good way to parlay into our little segments. So we did, I prepared three segments for us to kind of keep the conversation organized to an extent. So we have three awards to give out the first award. We dubbed it the J.R. Smith award. J.R. Smith had the infamous offensive rebound to dribble out the clock with the tie, with the game tied in game one of the 2018 finals called it. It can be called the purest botch of all botches. Um, so the question was to award this who or what just dropped the ball in their big moment. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be reflective of the way JR did it with just not aware of time and score or just stupidity, honestly, in his case. But who did you have just had their moment and just didn't step up for it? Yeah, I have a couple for these. Um, I, I assume you do too. Um, I actually, I only have one for this one. This okay, okay, okay. I, I, I had a couple for this. I thought there were a lot of people that took some L's yep. um, in this episode, apart from Scotty in that moment, um, which we already mentioned. But if I had to choose one, I would just kind of focus it on everybody who kind of made MJ mad and <laughs> yep. did like little petty <laughs> things. And Horace said it and – I thought like the George Carl stuff was pretty funny. How like walking by him in the restaurant, like, and not saying anything, it was like to anybody else would be like, "Damn, like that's how it's gonna be." And then like you just kind of play. But to MJ, it's like that's what he needed to take his game to the next level when nobody even knew there was another level kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I'm just gonna say everybody who said anything or did anything to make MJ mad and you don't want to give him that. And Horace knew it after, after they, they beat him in 45 when they said 45 and 23 mm-hmm. Horace was like, Oh God, here we go again. And so I'm just going to bring it all together and just say, don't make MJ mad. It's literally, crazy. literally. Um, I just thought it was cra- Like, I felt like it probably happened four or five times tonight where, I mean, you had MJ talking about BJ Armstrong where he was like, I, I thought BJ knew better than that. And then I'm going to kill him. And he killed him. And then Horace saying, I knew Nick shouldn't have said that. And knew MJ was going to kill us. And he killed us. Like, it's just like this constant theme of MJ. Like, oh, and he had, I mean, it's him too. It's not just the other people. He said it. He said, he was just looking for that constant, like little petty thing to throw him off and just motivate him that much more to push him against. You said to that top goat level. Yeah. It's like, he's roaming around just like, searching for anything kind of like like a vulture just looking for anything that'll make him get to that next level and it definitely wasn't very hard to do when he was at the top of his level so and especially when he was coming back from baseball and people were doubting him it was like of course he goes on to play 82 games in the next three seasons and go the repeat of course he does Mm -hmm. so uh, just when everyone starts doubting him yeah i mean and it took literally the simplest of things i'm blanking on the guy's last name but LeBradford, LeBradford, yeah, LeBradford Smith, LeBradford Smith on the bullets. Literally, all it says is "nice, nice game, Mike," and he goes and hangs thirty-six on him in the yeah. first half. I, you can't even make it up. So, what else? What else you have for that one? Um, I have a shout out to Sports Illustrated. Mm, um, yep, yep. Given that cover of and 
really crapping on Mike for playing some bad baseball. And um, I've always been amazed by Mike playing baseball, batting over 200. Um, like a guy his size isn't supposed to bat that well at that level of baseball. And some people are going to say, like, oh, it was double A. But when you haven't played baseball since high school and you're years removed from the game, a decade removed from the game, to do that at that kind of level is impressive. And, um, yeah, he was in a cold slump when they wrote the article. But now that Mike refuses to ever speak to Sports Illustrated <laughs> again, and that doesn't surprise me at all. So Sports Illustrated, I think they kind of were short-sighted on that, on that headline. Yeah, I definitely think that's rightful J.R. Smith Award. I definitely think they – didn't calculate the risk reward on that one properly. Uh, I don't think it was that one cover was worth MJ no. blackballing them for the next 10 years. When He, he never spoke the to them again, and they, they just wanted to have a creative cover. I mean, the guy wanted to make a name for himself, and it costed the Sports Illustrated for years. Yep, definitely. I think definitely that's a rightful word. Do you have, do you have one more? Uh, yeah, I got – I think Gary Payton – um Gary Payton definitely took an L the glove the glove took an L um the MJ laughing at the iPad I think will be a a nice meme to get us through the quarantine any headline everyone's just going to post MJ dying of laughter at the at the iPad and um I just thought it was like it was just so like classic MJ to where Gary Payton's sitting there and he's like I was getting to him like I got tired <laughs> like in going deep into depth and like his strategy and how he stopped MJ and MJ was just like no it didn't impact me at all it didn't impact me at all but and no when yeah, why yeah, it's yeah no I was because why it's so great is because there's literally video evidence that shows that like he gave him a hard time in I think it yeah, was game I mean, four I mean the, it said games they, like, four and five yep, in game four Seattle were I think like Gary Payton's might have been in some of his best games of all time. It was, mm-hmm. it's, it's an underrated Sonics team, and all the teams that they beat in the '90s are going to go down as being underrated just because they didn't get the chance to be on top. But um, it was like, it, it might have been his best games of all time. But MJ just like shrugged it off. Yep, I mean that. I thought that just epitomized how untouchable MJ really thought he was because. In the doc, literally, as they're showing the video evidence of him getting frustrated, getting tired, pushing off for an offensive foul, like all the little things that get show that you're rattled as a basketball player is literally him doing. And then he just brushes it off and goes on to win game six. Right. And gets his fourth ring. Yeah, I thought that was awesome. Does that is that all you got for that one? Yeah, that's all I got for that one. Um, so I took the easy way out on this one, but I wanted, I really wanted to talk about it. So I left, I only had one Jared Smith award winner and it was for Scotty. I mean, just yeah. that's the ultimate ball drop as someone who preaches, be a great teammate. I just, I, I don't even understand. I can't comprehend how that's possible. Like Scotty is great. Don't get Scotty is incredible, but we know Scotty's game He's an all-around player. He's a defensive menace. He's a great passer. He scores the ball like he's a beast in transition. He gets to the rim. But if there's two seconds left and you need to turn and hit a quick shot, it's not unreasonable that you would turn to Tony Kukoc, tall, tough shot maker, someone who's hit multiple buzzer beaters throughout the season. Like It's not unfathomable that Phil would turn to Tony and just still, Scotty, just Phil said, are, are you in or are you out? And he said, I'm out. And just stuck with that. I, that was just unfathomable to me yeah and and 
I think that a, I think Twitter likes to bring this up a lot. And I know some other people who do podcasts and talk about the last dance love talking about how the MJ Scotty relationship is super interesting and kind of how MJ refuses to call the migraines migraines. He only calls them headaches and Mm -hmm. how MJ kind of, he knows that Scotty made him the better player, but he doesn't think that like he, like some people think that, MJ could have done it with anyone and like he just kind of sees Scotty as whoever like my number two just because it happened to work out that way but I mean I personally don't see it that way I but I but I don't I, I think that they're great in terms of how their styles fit together and all that kind of stuff but I think that that moment of Scotty not coming in the game is definitely qualifies for this award and I think it it definitely sent a message to a lot of the basketball world. And it's one of those things where it's like in the, when your back's up against the wall and you're in these pressure moments, it's like, that's when your true character comes out. And I don't think that that was, I think that was kind of like a lapse in character for Scotty. And I think it might've been the opposite, but it's a moment that he's going to be remembered for. And Phil, I respect Phil for just kind of being like, all right, fuck that next guy up, you know, kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, Definitely, Scotty is one of the most polarizing guys in NBA history, and I think this is just another moment that accentuates that and makes that more dramatic. Yeah, I mean, I've been. We talked about this on the podcast last week. Like, I've been watching a ton of Bulls games, and I I really love Scotty. Like, watching that dude play is awesome. He's super unselfish. He's a great defender. He does every little thing on the basketball court. And my dad is noted. Scotty skeptic and throughout these entire episodes I've been trying to convince him Scotty's underrated Scotty's one of the best number twos if not the best number two of all time that was just one lapse in character but then just the one and I look I still think it was because everyone on the record says it was Kerr says it was mm-hmm. in the show he says it was on the podcast with Zach Lowe like everyone says that's really not who he is and then he says yeah, I mean, if I would go back, yeah, that was I would do it. I would do it again, and I was like, dude, what are you talking about? I was how like, can you, how can you just say I wish it didn't happen, but then I would go do it again? I I like almost forgot about that because it was one of the only moments of the of the documentary where I was like, did he actually just say that? Like, <laughs> and and I feel like the doc just kept moving, and it didn't it really did? it didn't really like focus on that. But it was kind of like one of those things where it was like, this guy just say he would sit out again, and like. He didn't just say like, yeah, it was a lapse of judgment. Like I fucked up. I should have just taken the ball out. Mm-hmm. I, I could not believe it when I heard it. And I, thanks for bringing it up because it was like almost like forgotten about. Yeah. I mean, that was the one that I was just like, damn, you just made it a million times harder for me to defend yeah. you because yeah, like if, if you just own up to that and say, yep, my B, like that's not who I am, like everyone else says it is, which then I can buy that. Like, look, uh-huh. no one's perfect. Everyone makes a mistake. Yes. Was that a huge fucking mistake and one that I can't really understand someone making? Yeah, but fine. You own it. You move on. But just for him to then double down on it was right. nuts. Nuts. Um. Okay. So I want to move on from the J.R. Smith Award because I have a couple for the next two. All right, you start us off for this one. All right, so I'll start us off. The next one, we have the Loyola Marymount Award, named after the 1990 Loyola Marymount College basketball team, led by Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers. They averaged 122 points, the NCAA D1 record at the time, and I think it still holds today. It has to. That's 
a crazy number. It's a lot of per, points. Per game, 122 points per game. Um, their pace, their shot selection was revolutionary and re- very reminiscent of the game today. So this award is going out to someone that was ahead of the time when, when this was filmed. Not only did they age well, but they were kind of just, whether it was a decision that was controversial back then or just something that wasn't really normal um, or just something that was day-to-day back then that we're just kind of seeing to light through the dock and it would now age well this year. So I have for my first one, I have Phil. Um, I have Phil. I think Phil has aged tremendously from this dock. Phil is, Phil is really, I think, getting a great um... – Rep, rep, his reputation, especially me as a Knicks fan, like seeing Phil the coach again and him being the freshest thing in my mind is very nice, especially after what he did in the Knicks front office. Um, like I said before, the Scotty moment, I thought Phil handled really well. I think a lot of adversity that the team went through, Phil handled really well time and time again. And, and it's kind of like, stuff happens where MJ goes to play baseball or Kraus says something that's kind of not really would flow in today's game. And, and MJ does something crazy and Phil's just kind of that steady presence. Who's always there. And the team's kind of playing the same brand of basketball and they're getting the, the most out of these role players. And so I agree with you. I think Phil as a coach, as a leader of men and as a basketball strategist is getting, a great showing in this podcast. Yeah. I mean, obviously we saw the X's and O's a couple, either it was last episode or two episodes ago with Tex Winter when they were doing the triangle, but not even, I mean, beyond that, just managing personalities. And we know in the NBA, that's one of the hardest parts of coaching, if not the hardest. Um, And just when, how many coaches in the NBA, if their assistant comes up to them and says, your best player is not going in the game to inbound the ball as probably your best passer, how many coaches have the composure to just say, all right, fuck it, someone else go in and throw the ball in. Like, instead of maybe calling another timeout, freaking out, yelling at, going to yell at Scotty and making a whole scene and distracting the, everyone else. Like, he was so calm, cool, and collected that who knows if they make that pass and Kukoc makes a shot if Phil isn't Phil. And um, I've been preaching Phil and singing his praises since the doc started, and I get some pushback. Well, he, he's always had – he had Jordan and Pippen, and then he had Shaq, and, I, and he had Kobe – like he always had the best players and the, my counter that always is that's not fucking easy. Like, right. yes, it's easy to roll the ball out to them and let them work, but managing those personalities is so, so difficult. I mean, again, eventually it got so difficult with Shaq and Kobe that one of them had to leave. But the fact that they strung together a three-peat is, has to be a testament to Phil. Like when Jordan called him and says, I want to go retire, Phil doesn't talk him out of it. He says, all right, Mike, you go do you. And like, he just kind of had this Zen about him that made everything click for them. And I think that can't be understated. And Reinsdorf even went to Phil and he was like, you got to talk to him before he makes this decision. And Phil, I think maybe Reinsdorf was maybe expecting Phil to be like, you got like convincing him to stay or something Mm -hmm. like that. But it really wasn't Phil's style. And I think that watching it in, in retrospective, it's like, of course he was going to force him to stay. That's not just not who Phil is. Mm-hmm. And then I think um, Bill Simmons talked about this the other day, talking about when MJ retired after the last dance, after the 98 season, um, a lot of, most of it had to do with him only wanting to play for Phil. And that's mm-hmm. just is another testament to Phil's character. And when the best basketball player of all time is only willing to play for one coach, 
A, how do you not bring that coach back? I mean, that's a whole other story. But yeah. B, it, it obviously sh- shows something about Phil that that something that he's doing is right and it's clicking. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think we'll talk about how in the world you didn't bring that team back. I think we'll definitely talk about that next week once they go more in-depth about the 98 finals, about the series against the Pacers and Reggie and all that, and just how great that 98 team was. Um, well, Why don't you give one of yours for this category? All right, I'll give one of mine. Um, so I was watching, and during the breaks, I like to go to Twitter just to see what people are saying. I don't mm-hmm. – I don't, I'm not on my phone during the doc, but I like to see a couple people that I follow, what they got to say. And um, shout out Reed Wallach, um, mutual <laughs> friend of ours. Uh, and I was thinking it during the podcast. I, I, I know what you're going to say. I know what, you, I know what you're yeah. going to say because I thought about it. I didn't tweet it because I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not going to tweet this. Like, whatever. It was just a thought. And I logged on. I saw retweeted it. And I think we're thinking the same tweet. I was like, these Warner Bros. Studios yep, yep, pickup games yep. are – Yep. so modern and so reed said these these pickup games at warner brothers studios were the original chris brickley pickup games and that to me is just perfect and it's it's when you see highlights on instagram of all these guys in these small gyms going back and forth and hoodie mellow and all these kind of trends that we're seeing today and they're just so normal this was definitely ahead of its time when mj invited all these guys to the Space Jam set to play these pickup games. It was like you had to be there, and that's kind of what everyone assumes happens with these summer games with Harden and LeBron mm-hmm. and the biggest names in the game all coming together to play pickup. MJ started it. Here it is. Here's here's footage from from the games that they're gonna say that he used against Reggie a couple <laughs> years down the down the stretch. Um, but I love that. I I love the whole best guys in the game coming together and coming to Warner brothers to play, uh, to play pickup with MJ. I thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, look, we've all had moments on Twitter where you have a thought, you sit at the keyboard, you type something out, you type a couple things out and you're just like, you know what? I, fuck it. I don't know how to put this in the right words and you just delete it and move on. And then I saw retweet that and I was like, damn, he, he said it perfectly. And yep, I knew exactly where you're going with that. And I love that too. Um, also like, the Jordan Dome was – that was really, really cool that they yeah. set that up for them. That was a really great setup for him. I think I that was really cool. I think uh, it's kind of like you got to do what you got to do to get MJ to be in your movie. You yep. do whatever he needs. And um, they were like, yeah, we could literally build you whatever. I'm sure they built fake cities on the same land. I'm mm-hmm. sure they could build a basketball court with a dome over it for MJ. Yep, 100%. Um, so my second one and my last one for the Loyola Marymount Award um, – the 72 and 10 don't mean a thing without the ring. Just yeah. trolling the Warriors like <laughs> 25 years before the Warriors even existed. And that team was so damn good, but they knew it that it wouldn't mean a thing. And that was, it's the epitome of MJ. I ordered the shirt off some random website like three weeks ago on the one, like a replica of that they wore in the warmups. And it's just, it's so perfect. It's so MJ and it's even better now after the Warriors went 73 and nine and then didn't win. And now everyone kind of puts a huge asterisk next to that regular season. So I thought that was way ahead of its time. Yeah. And, and it's like, you can't help but think of the Warriors when you're watching that. It's like, they didn't, I mean, they mentioned it right on sports center right afterwards and people on Twitter were talking about it too, but without doing it intentionally, it's like, it's true. I mean, that Warriors team, who I think is one of the 
best regular is the best regular season team I've ever seen goes into the finals and drops a three one lead and it's like what does it mean? Mm-hmm. It's 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 really, really like fascinating to see twenty years ago that this same exact thing happened and it plays out a different way and they're like they knew it didn't mean a thing without the ring and it was it was definitely definitely true yeah i mean it's just it's tough it's as a warriors advocate i think the warriors like when it's all said and done i think the teams i think curry i think draymond all those dudes will get underrated so and i was on a group text with someone and they were like yep 90, 96 balls undoubtedly the best team of all time and i was about to write back nah 15 warriors and then i just or, or 16 warriors and i was just like what what arguments do I have? They didn't win it. Like, right. yes, they're awesome. Steph was awesome. Draymond had a historic year. But at the end of the day, it's that one. What does that one regular season win? What does that mean? Like, what does that mean if you don't finish it off? True. So that Definitely was my agree. that was my second one, and I thought it was ironic, funny, and just a little bit of everything. Yeah, I've I've one more that I'll close this one out with. Um, so I picked a couple media members that I thought re- reminded me of people of the modern day. Um, okay, I like this. First, the, the Craig Sager question. Mm, that was Craig awesome. Sager. Um, awesome. I feel like nowadays some reporters just get in there to piss off some of the players or GMs and just drop a question that they know isn't going to be handled well. And Jerry Krause seems like the ultimate guy to do that to. So when Craig Sager asked him about that, he got the iconic quote back about backstabbing. and. <laughs> um, Obviously, if you say that to Jerry, he's not going to give you a warm answer and he's going to do exactly what he did. He's going to give that crazy quote and walk out of the press conference. So um, Craig Sager dropping that, everyone was kind of like, oh, great, great job, Craig. Like <laughs> that, that was really fucking funny. <laughs> so I thought that was ahead of his time. And then we've seen it throughout the pod and it's starting. I, I keep saying pod, but um, seen it throughout the doc. Uh, the relationship that MJ had with the mod Rashad. Um, really really interesting i think that he's been interviewed a couple times and we know him he was working for nbc at the time um did some stuff with nba entertainment and it's like ahmad is what we know as mav carter rich kleinman he's these guys who are with these superstars who kind of help them get their message out and help them get what they want to say out into the world and have their back in the public circles. And um, just kind of this inner circle that, you know, a guy like KD, his inner circle is not that big. LeBron has this couple guys and it's kind of like MJ was big enough to where a guy like Ahmad played that role back then. And everyone kind of knew it. It was like, yeah, he was on NBC and he would interview Mike. And it was like, these guys are friends off the court so i think that is something that and like like you know like jay williams is part of kd's inner Mm -hmm. circle and they talk a lot and stuff like that so i thought that was ahead of its time and in terms of their relationship as well yeah i mean i definitely ahead of its time and also like really refreshing honestly when you're watching it because we just see basically the media drive mj out in 93 that he just can't take it anymore um into in the 92 summer he just is so tired. He's exhausted. Then 93 it just keeps getting hounded questions with the Jordan rules book. And it kind of felt like the entire media was like ganging up on him to tear this guy down. But then you just constantly have like a mod that's always in his corner, always in his corner, whether it's riding with him to a game. Like I saw a picture on Twitter and it was like, 
Ahmad just like chilling in the Barcelona Olympics. And it was like him, MJ, Magic, and Bert. And I was like, that is the coolest thing ever that he was just kind of in with them. But it was because of how close he was with Mike. And Mike really trusted him. And you kind of get, they don't really talk about it a ton, but you do get the feeling that Mike's circle was pretty, pretty tight and like kind of reminiscent of a lot of the stars in today's game. And you saw, I mean, he, Ahmad gave him that interview when Mike had the sunglasses on and he was like trying to resurrect right. his image. And yeah, I think that was definitely ahead of his time. And I think it's a really cool kind of subplot of the whole thing. Yeah. And, and you were talking about 92 and then again, we see it in 98 mm-hmm. post everything with his dad. Um, when he, when he took time off and like, he's a constant in his whole career and his whole personal life. And, we saw in 93 when he was saying how the hotel room is kind of just like his world now. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine his circles that big. So for a guy to be a constant, it kind of reminds me of some of these modern day guys. Yeah, no, definitely a great point. Um, and then moving on to our third and final award that's near and dear to both of our hearts as Knicks fans, we have the Linsanity Award. Um, Jeremy Lin's notable two week ish stretch, um, where he just went absolutely nuclear, um, just 30 point games against the biggest teams in the league, buzzer beater at Toronto, just craziness in the basketball world. And then he parlayed that contract into a nice three for 25 deal in Houston. And that was before the cap jump. So a pretty solid payday for someone who kind of never even returned replacement value in the league. So basically the ultimate heat check you could ever think of. So this award kind of goes out to someone who stepped up their game for a single moment and had a heat check. Um, we mentioned him earlier in the pod, uh, but I think LeBradford Smith definitely takes the cake on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some backups if we need some more, but uh, he scored 37 on MJ uh, in Chicago. And one of those games, he went 15 for 20. And they lost. They didn't even beat Michael. But just the fact that MJ got torched by this unknown guy and without this moment, he still probably is an unknown guy in NBA history. Mm -hmm. He's now cemented in NBA history because, like we've said before, MJ just takes guys and what they do and what they say very personally. And um LeBradford Smith makes a name for himself by being the motivation for MJ to go out and, like he said, I'm going to have as many as he did in the first half tomorrow night. (laughs) Yeah, classic quote from MJ, and even better that he actually came through with it. So I have a couple for this one. Um, I'll start off with, I think, my most obvious one, and we kind of already covered it a little bit, so I'll just lead off with this one. MJ batting over 200 after not playing baseball for 14 years, I think that's a pretty impressive heat check. Um, Obviously, it's double A, whatever. Maybe the pitchers were throwing him softballs, maybe not. But look, the dude kind of held his own after literally not playing the sport for half of his lifetime. And I think that's a heat check, and I'm giving him credit for that. Yeah, especially the hit streak. Yeah. Um, I hit thought streak that was, was like, impressive. it's like, how is this going to happen? I mean, and the work ethic, you, you see it in anything he does. But when he can't hit the curveball in the game, he's not just going to sit down and be like, yep, I just can't hit curveballs. Let's go out and eat dinner. He's no, he's going to like, like they said in the documentary, he's going to make sure that he puts in more work than anybody else to, to go ahead and make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah. 
Um, and then I'll get another one of mine out of the way. Um, BJ Armstrong, another big time heat check. Uh, I think he went for 23 or 25, something in the mid to low 20s against Chicago. In, in Chicago, in the United Center, against his former team, plus the game winner, and he averaged a whopping four points per game that season. So major heat check. B.J. Armstrong had a night. Um, it was against his former team. Clearly ticked off Jordan, um, and he knew it too. And I thought that was pretty awesome. Definitely a heat check moment. I I kind of think he was being like overreacting a little bit, but uh, when he said, like, I knew exactly how to beat the triangle – um, like I knew, I knew exactly what to do to, to win. And it was kind of just like, all right, I, you could have also just like gotten really hot and had some, had some big game experience, but, um, it was definitely one of those moments where it's like a guy playing out of his mind. And so definitely a heat check moment. No, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think it's definitely more likely that it's the latter that he just kind of got hot. And sometimes, the rim gets a little big um, compared to the fact that he just, oh, I knew the triangle. I knew how to beat the triangle. Because then if that were really the case, then Horace and the Magic would have like swept the Bulls again because that right. was a much better team. And if we're applying that same logic, whatever. But I do think he got a little overzealous with his moment. But however, he had his moment. So we'll give it to him. Um, what else you got for that one? Um, another one I got is uh, Scott Burrell has been getting a lot of shit um from mj and twitter and he did not have a long career of playoff experience but um in a game three i believe it was in the meadowlands uh mm-hmm. scott burrell i forget exactly how many points it was but he put away the new jersey nets in in the first series of the 98 playoffs and it might not have been a elimination game or a huge moment or anything like that but to hear that Scott Burrell had missed one shot or had like 20 something points. It was just kind of like good for Scott Burrell because he's been getting shit all season. Any <laughs> Anytime there's been last dance footage from the, from the plane, from the locker room, from practice, it's kind of like MJ shitting on Scott Burrell. So good for Scott Burrell um, getting that moment and having that, I guess he checked because uh, I feel like he stepped up in a big playoff game. Yeah, 100%. He was one of my backups. I'd love to see that. Uh, we never really talked about the plane where MJ basically just reamed him out for like four straight minutes. Um, Mom, dad, he's, he's an alcoholic. He's he's always out. He can't stick to one girl. I mean, you you name it. He let it rain on Scott Burrell and then continued again. But I mean, look, it appears they had a good bond. They were close. Scott knew that MJ wanted him to be great. And he wanted him to put he wanted to push him. And then he showed up when it mattered. So happy for Scott Burrell. And yeah, that was definitely a good moment. Um, how many do you have left? I have one left. So you want me yeah, to just you go, go ahead finish mine? All right. So I like this one. I think this is kind of a dark horse. Um, I'm going to go Bill Cartwright for his post-game speech. Um, yeah. not, ne- not necessarily a heat check moment. Like not necessarily he was out of his zone or like playing out of, his, out of himself, but big time moment. And I think he stepped up and cleared the air and got a little bit emotion, emotional. They said he had tears going down his eyes, but I think that's kind of what brought everyone together. And they realized how big of a moment that was. And I think it kind of hit Scotty that he let a lot of people down and see to see that raw emotion from Bill. It wasn't like a fuck you. How could you ever do that to us? It was more of a disappointment. And I think 
you could tell that that kind of hit Scotty harder than if they would have cursed him out or yelled at him. And I think that really brought everyone together. So props to Bill Cartwright. I think he handled the moment perfectly and showed up when it mattered. And I think that any speech that goes down in history like that is a heat check moment, just being able to hit the right tone at the right moment. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I definitely give him credit for delivering the right message at the right time. Um, you have any other ones or are you done with that? Not really. Um, I have just some other tidbits from the episode that I thought were pretty notable. Um, shout out Mother's Day. Um, mm-hmm. Mother's Day today, even though Father's Day in the documentary was the one that got all the, all the shine. Um, MJ obviously winning the 95 title on Father's Day. Um, funny that they played it on Mother's Day. I think it's just a coincidence, but um, Father's Day getting all the shine on Mother's Day was uh, pretty funny to me. And then um, I thought the Steve Kerr and MJ practice moment was that pretty was interesting. Awesome. I didn't really know which uh, section to put this in in terms of our categories, but I think that the Steve Kerr kind of respect from MJ is something that when you start to see like those kind of qualities in a teammate and the kind of like respect and admiration that MJ had for a guy who obviously was not at his playing level or anything like that, but just to acknowledge a competitor on the same level, it was kind of like, obviously now we look back at it and he's like, he's going to be a great coach one day. Mm-hmm. Um, he's pro- if not the best coach in the league right now, he's up there as one of the best coaches in the league for those kind of characteristics that have gotten him through his whole career, whether it's being a competitor being able to speak the same language as the best players. It's it's stuff that we saw very early on in Steve Kerr. Yeah, and I think the Kerr and Jordan relationship, mutual respect, whatever you want to call it, was really interesting. And I forgot who said it. I think it was BJ who said my playing for Michael, playing with Michael can be will be a pain in the ass if you don't love the game. And that was kind of the common theme that I saw in this episode with Michael is Michael wasn't gonna really get mad at you if you missed the shot or if you like whatever, like anything basketball related, he was going to get mad at you if he felt that you weren't giving your all and you weren't busting your ass. And so with Kerr, you see that he even says it. He says, look, I might always, I didn't always have the game to back it up, but I was a damn good competitor and I was going to fight. And that's how I gained Michael's respect. But it wasn't by hitting X amount of shots. It was by fighting and standing up to him. And that was the best thing I ever could have done, which then in turn, you like Michael then has faith in him to hit the shot tells him stay ready and then ultimately hits the big final shot like I think that's really interesting in terms of like how Michael develops his respect for his teammates I think that I hope they kind of go into more detail about it in the last two episodes but the MJ like overarching philosophy of like openly acknowledging and others his friends his teammates saying like yeah Mike was an asshole like Mike was this Mike was that not necessarily saying like genuinely good guy Mm -hmm. always had your back like that kind of stuff that you usually hear about the best players in the league it wasn't necessarily like mj's all this but i think his his overlying and overarching strategy that the some even the game's best players can't necessarily see but a guy of mj's experience and caliber and stuff he was playing the long game where he's he's testing these guys intentionally and when you have that kind of control over your emotions and your teammates and stuff like that, that's kind of like a whole nother level of leadership and 
expertise and like mastering of the craft when you can when you can by the way you play whether it's intentionally or unintentionally in practice or saying something here and there you kind of learn and um are doing it very intentionally and with a per with a greater purpose so i think he got emotional before the commercial breaks it might have been during episode seven mm -hmm. um when he was kind of like i wanted these guys to experience success and I wanted to experience success because he's, as we know, the ultimate competitor. So how was he going to get that out of everyone? It was going to be through our, the trust level. Am I going to be able to trust you when our backs are against the wall? And um, a lot of people point to that Scotty moment as a moment where MJ wasn't there to hold people accountable and stuff like that. So do I think that Scotty moment happens with MJ on the bench right next to Scotty? Absolutely not. Yeah, no way. No, it doesn't no happen way. because MJ holds those guys accountable for that kind of stuff. And obviously that didn't happen in a vacuum where it's like more than just MJ being there and MJ not being there. But really, really interesting starting to get into like MJ as the super dominant, like ever controlling player. Yeah. Um, and we did say this is going to be a shorter pod, so I don't want to run too long. Um, but there's two quotes, um, one kind of just like sick quote that jumped out to me right when he said it. And then another one, which kind of backs up MJ's philosophy and which I, one I can really respect as a teammate, basketball player and everything in between from a leader. When MJ said, I was never going to yell at someone to do something I wasn't doing. And Everyone always says your culture start, starts from the top down and whether that's your coach, your star player, like if they're not doing it, then how can you expect everyone to follow? And that's what made MJ so great as a leader, honestly. Like it wasn't that he was going to be pick me up and hold your head up when you were feeling down. It was that he was doing all the dirty work. So you felt bad and you were inclined to do it because you felt like if he's busting his ass every single day doing all the dirty work, how can I not? follow in his footsteps and i just thought that was super awesome from him yeah like you said and i think it's a testament to the unique leadership that nj had yeah for sure and then the last one i don't know if this jumped out to you as much as it did for me but before they broke the huddle for one i can't all the years are kind of blend together but mj breaks the huddle and he says it starts with it starts with hard work and ends in champagne and i was like damn that's so fucking cool yeah those those pregame huddles i think mj always kind of knows exactly what to say and then mm -hmm. before they do their whole game time uh cheer but i think the the one-liners if i was in the huddle i would i would have been like damn like how do you know how to say it? Like, <laughs> that was that was fucking perfect as it mm -hmm. is every time every single time so we somehow got through the entire podcast without mentioning the lebron tweet that was kind of a dagger in the heart for all of Knicks fans when he tweeted, man, ain't nothing like Madison Square Garden. Um, my first reaction when I saw this was like, LeBron, there's literally a team that plays in Madison Square Garden 41 times a year that has been recruiting you to come there since 2010. And I just think we're that bad. It's, it's, it's almost like the pandemic has caused these, these Knicks – kind of jabs to be kind of put on pause. And of course, in the one time we have some sort of live basketball, they <laughs> find a way to, whether it's the media, or this time it was LeBron, but the last time we saw the Knicks, Spike Lee refused to go to any more games. And now uh, 
LeBron is saying how great of arena it is to play at MSG. It's like we can't even get a break. It's it's at this point for every time we talk about the Knicks, I think my opinion of them just gets worse. Like I think maybe the first time I came on, I was like, oh, the Knicks, like they could do it, and being like optimistic about them. But I think every time we talk about them, it just gets darker. Honestly, yeah, yeah I think to say the least. Um, I do think the Knicks. I think it's gotten a little bit overboard. I think it's just like everyone's fun activity now. Like everyone loves to shit on the Knicks. Like a hundred percent. Everyone just loves the idea of shitting on them more than it's even deserved at this point. Right. Cause I like MJ was killing the entire NBA in the nineties. No one was stopping him. Like, of course. Oh yeah. He beat the Knicks in route to the finals, but like, it wasn't like, Oh my God, the Knicks had nothing for him and everyone else knew the formula. And my entire timeline is, Oh my God, Nick's killer, Nick's killer, which he was like, let's not get it twisted. He was, but I do think it just shows like with the LeBron tweet and everything I saw, like, it's just like shitting on the Knicks is literally an activity that everyone but Knicks fans can like bond together with. I know. And I, as, as great of an arena as it is, and as great of famous fans that the Knicks have, you need more than famous fans in a famous arena to recruit a guy like LeBron or, recruit a guy like KD and I'm sure everyone loves playing at the garden, but um, it's only so special when there's success. So yep. uh, it, it hurt, but it was, it's kind of like expected at this point. It's pretty yeah. sad. Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that. And I think that kind of leads into a conversation that we'll have eventually on a different pod. Um, but for now, I think we hit on that. And just had to go back and talk about that one because that was just when I saw that, I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, that was just the ultimate F you. It was, yeah, nailing the coffin for Knicks <laughs> fans of this season for sure. For sure. Um, I kind of got everything out. I don't want to rush it, but also do want to be Tom Cognizant. If you have anything else you want to get out, feel free. Not really. I, uh, a lot of what I wanted to say, we kind of covered in our – our categories. I'm really excited for uh, nine and ten. I'm intrigued um, for the Reggie series, and also for um, I wonder how much they get into kind of his return and playing for the Wizards. Because mm-hmm. how how many times does he say like I don't want to? How many times have we heard him say like I don't want to go out as like a broken body? Like I want to go out as on top and I don't want to be dragged off the court. I want to walk by myself and stuff mm-hmm. like that. He says to a mod in the car and stuff like that. And then he comes back in the early two thousands for the wizards. And it's like, MJ, hold yourself accountable. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on. Um, but that uh, MJ not having Steve Kerr's number. Yeah. Um, needing, yep. needing to ask for it. I thought that was pretty funny. Yep. Um, but there's definitely more, but I thought another great episode and great talking about it right afterwards. Yep. Um, pleasure having you as always. Thank you guys for tuning in and hope we'll be back for nine and 10, sadly the last ones, but I'm sure last dance talk will live on throughout quarantine. Um, and yeah, thank you Sam for joining me. Of course. Be good.